I had a very different experience at Virgin to others. And the reason for that is the way that Branson works, I've got immense respect for Richard Branson. And, you know, he's ruthless. Uh, but nobody who's that successful isn't ruthless, you know. But he, understanding how his franchising model works, will is, is really key. Welcome to My Way, the podcast where we shape our path in business and life. I'm your host, Ivan, former pro athlete and physiotherapist turned product marketer. Whether you're looking to inspire change, drive growth, or simply find your way, you are in the right place. Welcome aboard. Harry, welcome. Hello, how are you? Nice to be Um, here. I'm very good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, no, good, thank you. Good, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's my pleasure, and I'm so much looking forward to this chat. Great, let's go, let's dig in. All right, Harvey, let's kick it off by um, you sharing a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you're doing for the people that don't know you yet. Right, sure. Well, my name is Harvey Lee. I've I've probably been in product marketing for longer than product marketing almost existed. So I've been in product marketing for 25, 30 years. What I, that, a lot of what I've known, I'm known for in the marketing community is being a recognizable figure in the product marketing community specifically. But those people who know me um, and those people who are getting to know me also know that my background is in rock and roll. Uh, I started my career off as a teenager in the rock and roll business and uh, then moved into video games. I suppose... Um, the, the unavoidable topic of my involvement with Xbox has to come up because uh, I'm probably most well known for being on the original Xbox launch team. Uh, and more recently, in the past 10 years, working in tech and specifically in product marketing in tech and, and more recently uh, being a leading figure in the product marketing community. And now I'm an author. I've got a book coming out. So, you know, the, the journey continues. And we'll talk more about it uh, later. Uh, I, I'm super curious, you know, about this transition from from music into technology, into marketing and product marketing. What were your learnings there, and what have you been able to apply from the overall music industry into something that seems apparently totally different? Yeah, it does. It does seem to not correlate, doesn't it? But actually, when you interrogate it a little bit, uh, actually. The, the the lines of connection start start to appear. If you think about music today, music today is technology. I mean, the way that music has been going for years and years and years has 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 moved from what is and and it, you know to a large degree still a very creative uh, topic. To, but it was always it was always delivered in formats, and they were physical formats. And you could argue that they were the technology of the day: vinyl records, tape cassettes. Or if it's back in my day, Super 8 cassettes. Um, I don't go so far back as um, as cylinders, but, you know, it's, it's not far off. And, and today being, you know, the internet, the internet changed, the internet technology changed the music business structurally. So from that point of view, maybe it's not such a surprise because the format, the delivery and the distribution of music has been de- determined by technology pretty much forever. 
But nobody really thought of it as technology until the technology happened to just be empowered by the internet. From my point of view, yeah, it, it seems illogical. It seems a bit haphazard. How I went from being on the road as a teenager and in, in my early 20s into artist and business and label management, into marketing and then into video games and then into tech. Well, the, the funny thing is that when I was working, I probably say I was never anywhere close to tech and I wasn't technically minded when I was on the road. Uh, but when I was on the road, there was no mobile phones, there was no GPS. You know, technology of its day was very analog. It was, you know, if you need, if you were out and about and you needed to phone someone, you had to find a call box and put physical coins in it. That, I mean, we're talking about that era. That was the technology. So tech didn't really exist in, in that way. Where I got introduced to tech was still in the music industry. It was around 90, about 93, 94. And I started using, I had a fax machine at home. And then I had an electric typewriter, not a manual one. Mm-hmm. And then that moved to a computer of sorts that I really didn't get on with. It was a 386 or 286 i can't remember i think it was it was running windows 3.11 for work groups i mean that was my first contact with technology as we know it uh, today within two years i was working in a record label in london and i had my own laptop we're running windows 3 we upgraded to windows 95 and i think for everybody in the world the windows 95 was the pivot really where technology became accessible for everybody even though computers have been around for ages we had dot matrix printers we had 286 we had dos and you know work could happen it was very manual and there was no there was no keyboard and mouse it was all keystrokes so i got introduced to technology or tech if you want to call it that while i was at the record label and all their accounting was done on IBM 286 computers, blue screens, all that kind of stuff. And then the whole company, and it wasn't a very big company, but the whole company upgraded to Windows 95. And then really nothing was the same ever since. Uh, we, we got plugged into the internet in a meaningful way, always on connections. I bought my own laptop and I just taught myself how to do things like mail merge mailing lists for the bands that we were working with, you know, mail outs from the computer. And this sense of empowerment and the ability to multiply your impact by touching one button rather than sending multiple messages manually really was my introduction to technology. I mean, my fir- the first benefit I remember was, you know, when we used to send a press release out to radio stations in the, in the record label, I would have our receptionist sit by the fax machine for an entire day with a pile of 200 pieces of paper as you had to manually fax each one of them to a different number right that was our mail out right and then when i got when i got my laptop and i had the email addresses it was a push of a button and i was like oh we just saved a whole day and a whole person's time and so that was like wow this tech thing really is empowering and i can multiply my effect over and so i got interested from that point on i never really looked back after that it's interesting harvey how you mentioned emails so it looks like you already understood the value of it so many years ago, while today in some businesses, it's still not taken (laughs) for granted, you know, owning the customers, their daytime, being able to uh, connect to them without relying on external platforms, social media and so on. 
How, how did you understood this value early on when nobody was talking about it? I don't know. I, I just think being an early adopter, being cu- having a curious growth mindset, even though, you know, back in those days, I didn't recognize that was what it was. It was just, well, this is how I work. This is how I am. Was was really the key of it. I mean, there's a story in my book where where I meet my first fax machine in 1980. Oh, God, what's the year? 1984? 85? Something like that. Anyway, and I meet my first fax machine, and it's the size of a wardrobe. But I was curious. I was like, I, I'm, I'm just naturally curious. I want to know how things work. I want to know what the benefit is. And, you know, over the years, that that personal, natural curiosity has has stood me in good stead, to be honest, because I'm still, you know, even my, my ripe old age, I'm still naturally curious about how things work, right? And to make them work. And I'm still a bit of a techie geek, if I'm perfectly honest, you know, even on a personal level. So that transpires. But, yeah, you're right. It, I mean, if if organize organizations don't take it for granted right they or so should i say they take it for granted but they're they're not always right because their focus maybe their focus isn't on the customer the natural curiosity to really understand the customer they may well be thinking too much about themselves right and from that point of view i call that into orientation they're orientated too much looking at themselves rather than taking a walk and putting themselves in the shoes of their own customer that's that's just the starting point if you can't get that part right you're in for a struggle yeah yeah and i'm gonna ask you some follow-up questions later on that's right no <laughs> uh, i'm just curious you've been sharing a lot recently on linkedin about branding and uh, it, it looks like a literally like a mini marketing mba what what you shared on on social media yeah talking about branding you, one of the key brands, uh, I guess, at least from my perspective, that you work for is, is Virgin. And we talked yeah. a little bit uh, in the backstage about it. But I, I'm curious, you know, about this whole Richard Branson personality and working, really being hands-on into this this company. What was it like and what have you learned there? Yeah, so the th- the interesting thing about Virgin is, is his invest- is kind of is his, his investment vehicle. And some of the businesses he owns outright some of them are joint ventures like i don't think most people know that virgin airlines he doesn't wholly own virgin airlines he he probably did at the very beginning or he was a majority but now it's it's a joint venture i think it's with malaysia airlines but they use the virgin brand because of its equity virgin i worked at virgin interactive now now virgin interactive used to be called mastertronic and in in the days branson was uh, involved with it but what a lot of people don't know about Virgin Interactive is that Branson was already gone. He'd already sold out. There'd already been a management buyout, but they kept the name. And this this happens quite a bit in, in his business franchising business models. And what he does is he licenses the brand back to the company. So they're still Virgin, right? All right. And he makes money passively. So Virgin Interactive was no different. So by the time I got there, he was already gone. However, we had to live all the as, as a franchisee of the brand. We had to live the brand values as if he was sitting next to me. So that part doesn't change. You know, they they review the brand every year. You know, are you on track? Are, are you looking after it? Are you not looking after it? Measuring brand health, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you then you can renew for another year or not. So. 
it was a very, very interesting exercise. So we lived the Virgin brand values, but by that point, Richard was gone. And But that's also true for many of his businesses that are uh, using the, the Virgin brand. But, oh my, we lived the Virgin brand to its fullest. Uh, I mean, in the book, I, it's the, big, the, the, the story about Virgin in my book, Backstage Pass, is the biggest chapter in the book. It takes an hour to read it. Most of them only take 20 minutes, but it's massive. And it spans three years. And and it's real it's real rock and roll stuff. Let's just let's leave it leave it leave it there. And it's probably one of my most favorite chapters. It's certainly one of the most debauched, deranged rock and roll chapters in the book. But working for them, working for that brand was fantastic. I, it wasn't the only contact I had with Branson or Branson's empire because before I went there a few years, just a handful of years earlier I worked for a record label again it's in the book called EG Records and EG Records were a virgin franchisee or a licensee my boss uh, or my bosses at the time had a direct hotline to Richard Branson um, so EG Records in their final ooh, I want to say three to five years of being a major label licensee they had Brian Ferry and Roxy Music and Killing Jack. I mean, they had a big roster, uh, especially for an independent. So they licensed it through Virgin before that Polydor, before that Island. And so they used to sell a lot of records for Virgin when Branson actually still owned Virgin Records. But they sold their portfolio to Richard Branson, Richard Branson's Virgin Records at the time, I can't remember how long ago. This is a long time ago because it was before Virgin Airlines. And Branson was selling Virgin Records to EMI. And he was buying up catalogs to fatten up the goose to take it to market, so to speak. And we were and we were we were one of the meals that were getting uh, that were getting sold in. And so I used to hear stories about Richard Branson from my bo- from my bosses. So there's lots of different stories about him. I think it very much depends on the experience you have working with him or in in contact with his organisation. But you know, by and large, my my own personal experiences have have never been anything but but positive. You know, I read his book uh, while I was working at Virgin Interactive actually, and uh, he's just a very very inspiring character. But if anybody ever wants to know what the about the power and the equity and brand, you just need to do a case study on Virgin mm. because they can make money without without getting out of bed from that if in the licensee model, you know. And, you know, they've had their, fa- you know, they've been, they've had the humility to admit that they've had their failures as well. I don't know if you remember Virgin Clothing. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you remember Virgin, Virgin Cola as well. Virgin Cola was the biggest disaster they've ever had. And, and, and Branson's the first one to hold his hand up and go, yeah, we got that one wrong. You know, we should not have entered that category whatsoever. We've got it all wrong. Uh, but it's a fantastic MBA case study. Maybe actually, in my ne- in one of my newsletters, I'll do a case study on Virgin Cola because there's plenty of material about it, and it is a fantastic educational ex- uh, lesson for people who want to learn more about marketing and learn more about you know not cola but brands. Yeah, and it's interesting how you mentioned that on one side there were lots of failures, so on the other side, even if the person who was embodying the the values of the brand was not next to you. You were feeling this this presence. Uh, sometimes it feels in lots of companies that the further or the more distant you are for, from the person who embodies brand values, yeah. this just gets diluted. 
So why this didn't happen at Virgin or what were some strategies that were taken in place to make sure that the branding was still the highest priorities in the company? Well, I mean, there's, there's two things, right? There's, there's, there's the founder model, which, you know, Richard Branson understands clearer than anybody else that Virgin is Richard Branson. You cannot separate the two. Without Richard Branson, there is no Virgin. And when Richard Branson... In, in you know years to come hopefully lives to 120 and all of that but when Richard Branson is no more then Virgin will be another corporate brand so it'll be interesting it might even be a little sad to see what happens to the court to the Virgin brand after Richard Branson himself is gone so he is the embodiment of that brand number one as with as some founders always are in you know you cannot separate Tesla from Elon Musk etc 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 it's an interesting topic for the future to have. It's like what would happen when they're gone and maybe have a look at some case studies. The second part is well, what, what happens, how is, you know, how is the brand, brands are, brands are created and brands are managed. So Richard obviously created a brand, whether he knew it or not, back in the early days. And whether you're working in a company that he's already got a business interest in, uh, I know a couple of people who still work there who directly work for him. Or you work in one of his investment companies that license his brand. The brand still has to be managed and you still need great brand managers to manage the brand. Think about it. Think about it like, like a garden. It's like you reap what you sow. So creating a brand is creating the conditions to grow and to grow the right thing. Brand management is maintaining it in the right way so that it can do what it, so it can grow in the best possible way. So brand managers have two jobs. There's creation and there's management. It, it splits into two parts. And the management part of it, you can have a great brand and manage it badly, or you can have mm -hmm. a very average brand and manage it brilliantly. The outcomes... I, I would argue that an average brand managed well will do better than a brilliant brand managed poorly. So you have to be able to do both, right? And as brand, that's the challenge for a good brand manager. If you're a brand manager and you go into a new job, let's say you go to PNG or Unilever, you go to a big consumer package company. Product marketers in consumer packaged companies generally tend to be brand managers. They do a lot of the product marketing function as well. And those brand managers, they have P&L responsibility and it's their job. They are custodians of the brand. They didn't create the brand. They go in and it's like, okay, your brand portfolio is this. And mm -hmm. they're allocated a brand or a brand portfolio. And their job, their job is merely not to F it up. That's their job. Don't F it up. And, um, and you are a custodian of the brand. You don't own it. It's just you're holding it. It's, you know, you're holding the baby for a while. Don't drop it, right? And if you can nurture it, great. At some point, you're going to pass it on to another brand manager. Pass it on in as good as or better health than you received it, right? Brand management. And uh, I, I did an MBA in brand management with Mark Ritzer, which was one of the best courses I ever, ever did. So, I, you know, I learned, I really learned the essence of uh, what it really takes. And, and Virgin do it brilliantly. The CPG companies do it brilliantly. I don't think B2B companies do it well at all. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about that because I'm super curious. So we talked about brand at the moment. Considering your background and your experience, what are the other elements that make a company or a business successful? Well, outside of brand? Yes. Do you know what? I, I think that there's, there's two elements to this. There's an external element and, you know, in, in the interest of time, an ex, there's an external element and there's an internal element. The external element is the most important one in the short term, and that is being in the right category. Right? It's not about the brand. It's about being in the right category. At the end of the day, the category comes first. The, bank, the brand comes later. Right? Mm-hmm. Nobody was ever successful purely on the fact that they had a great brand. They're successful because they won the category, right? The category leader soaks up two-thirds, three-quarters of the sales in most categories based on data. So being in the right category is absolutely table stakes. And understanding your segment, the market, how you segment it, choosing where you play in the right category is really the biggest decision you're going to make at the beginning. You get that wrong, everything else will be wrong. Right, it's a mm-hmm. house of cards. Right, everything else will just fall over. So for me, number one, category is the most important deciding factor, and how you manage how you manage your entry into that category, or how you manage your existing presence in that category. That's the most important part. The second part is internal, and that's culture. Right, if you haven't got the, if you don't create the right conditions internally, with your greatest asset, and what is your greatest asset? your people. If you don't create the right conditions with your people inside the building, you will not be able to nurture the category that you have entered into or that you are already uh, a part of. So for me, those are the two big ones. Get either one of those wrongs, it's failure. You need both. From there, if you make good headway with both, then you've got a chance of building something meaningful, right? But it's not about brand. It's not about having the best product. It's not about the shiny features or the the exciting tech roadmap that we all, you know, many, many companies get wrapped up in. It's got nothing to do with it whatsoever. That's just minute detail as far as the customer is concerned, right? Do you mind sharing some specific examples? So for instance... You've brought with your team the Product Marketing Alliance to some amazing results. Uh, Do you mind talking a little bit about, first of all, what's Product Marketing Alliance and then how did you apply those principles to get it from something very early stage into a very successful educational platform? I'm not sure what uh, category do you fit in, but... Can you walk us through this process? Because it would be super yeah. interesting. Yeah, the category thing, we'll have to leave that. That's a massive topic, um, especially when you span multiple categories. Right. Well, first of all, I've got to give credit to Richard King. So Richard King's the founder of the, the Alliance and the Product Marketing Alliance. And, you know, the Alliance has more than one community, but the Product Marketing Alliance is probably the biggest and most well-known one. Rich started the Alliance uh, just before uh, lockdown, actually. None of us knew lockdown was coming. His his partner in crime, Josie, uh, ran SQL Media. They ran events very successfully. It was an events company. So the the business, per se, actually started off as as an events business, Uh, but it wasn't known as the Product Marketing Alliance at the time. And they started running what was called Product Marketing World. It was called Product Marketing World at the time. 
they did San Francisco, New York, London before lockdown. Yeah. It was called Product Marketing World. In fact, when I went to Epson, I sent my team to the London one. They all came back raving about it. Mm-hmm. It still wasn't really known as the Product Marketing Alliance by then. Rich started literally handing out leaflets and slices of pizza at these events. <laughs> As with all great companies, they start somewhere extremely modestly. You know, Marks and Spencer started off as a as a small stall bazaar in a market in Leeds. I mean, this is it Leeds UK. Uh, this is how these companies start, right? Same with Procter and Gamble. It was two two Irish immigrants getting off the boat in America and started decided to do what they did, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So PMA is no different. Um, so he started building the community. He started building a community. He didn't really know where it was going to go, uh, and I love that. It's like he chose a path, and just the path revealed itself. Uh, as he started, uh, I remember being at a community event in London. Actually, the last time I saw you in person, which was at uh, Fora in London a couple of months back, was the place that the PMA for me really started in 2000, late 2019, early 2020. Rich was there with a fold-out table from Costco, handing out slices of pizza and bottles of beer and leaflets, getting people to sign up to the Slack group. And, it, you know, 100 turned into 500, turned into 1,000, turned into 4,000, turned into 5,000. And then what happened was, you know, he would deliver value, build the website online, and then lockdown happened. And he discovered this shared pain uh, with, with this community. And it just really grew from there. And it grew on Slack. Uh, I mean, they've got 40,000 people on Slack now, uh, on the free Slack. Uh, but this sense of community, this sense of uh, not foreboding, but this sense of shared pain and the power in the community to help each other and soothe that pain was was really quite unexpected, but it was phenomenal. It drove the phenomenal growth. And of course, uh, I don't want to say lucky because it's not a lucky event, but you know, because of lockdown, everything got drove online and could be built easier, right? Mm-hmm. So the growth happened quicker. So, of course, everything went digital. The events got cancelled. And Rich is a fantastic technician when it comes to sort of building digital stuff. And the community grew. The offerings grew. Uh, I left my job and, and started consulting. And and as a founding, first 5,000 founding member, started teaching, coaching, hosting podcasts. You were doing the whole thing. And it just... It just grew and grew and grew and grew very organically, very organically. And and that's where it really started. So I did that. So for two years, it was during lockdown. It was mostly online. And then, of course, when lockdown finished and things started opening up, um, the events came back, the courses in all the in-person stuff started happening. It just carried on, it just carried on growing. The, 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 the orbit um, carried it to the next, next stage of growth. Back to your question about which category is it in. Essentially, the alliance or the product marketing alliance is a community. So it, it, that's what it is. But it plays in multiple subcategories or multiple categories uh, because a community has lots of different branches or lots of different tenants, right? And, you know, the big two, the, the big two or three probably would be, number one is events. So they run fantastic summits and events all around the world on an annual basis and, and, and the events team in the Alliance is just a bunch of rock stars. Fantastic. Been to plenty, hosted plenty, spoken at plenty, and they're, they're just a great team and they've got it down pat. 
Uh, the the L and D part is also great at a community level. So for the product marketing alliance, they you know they do great courses for new product marketers, existing product marketers, and they have a really really real depth and breadth in in their offering. Uh, and then the third part is memberships. So you know paid memberships. So you can get a lot of value out of the PMA for free, but you can get exponential value if you're a paying customer so their their new their latest subscription offering is proven really popular which is the all you can eat offering what, what would you say is now the ratio of uh, paid value against the free value for the product marketing alliance that would be, i can't share that number sorry you're gonna have to edit that one out <laughs> no no worries we'll do that yeah uh but it it I think it's about 90-10 or mm-hmm. the majority of it's for, you know for free but what's interesting is the pro package which is I think starts at about $2000 a year where you get a free event all the courses all the pro membership stuff thrown in has proven to be the most popular mm. uh, develop commercial development in the past 12 months because it's just the best value it's just actually quite that simple it's just the best value so um you know an event alone is going to cost you 1400 to go to an event well for 2000 you can have eight thousand dollars worth of courses thrown in unlimited you know plus all the membership stuff and all the call-ins and the hosted meetings and so it is really worth it but of course you want to get out of it what you put in so anyhow Let's leave that one there. Let's move to another question. Yeah, sure, sure. Now, after you know having a community of forty thousand members and teaching so many courses, what what's the best way to define product marketing? Well, I th- I think that the starting point. Uh, the, uh, listen, I'll be clear. I don't think there is a definition for product marketing because there's it's just too varied. So everybody will have their own point of view. And guess what? Everyone is more likely going to be right in their own context. Mm-hmm. The, reality of pro- the reality of defining product marketing is, first of all, to understand what it is rather than how to define it. And defining what it is is also not quite as straightforward as many people would appreciate. The reality of the matter for product marketing is it's not a marketing job, right? This is the, this is, this is the, I don't know, would you call it a paradox? This is, uh, this is the, the tension in the role and, and the title is that the title is a little bit misleading, right? Because we're not product people and we're not marketing people, right? But we're, we're product marketing. So that's confusing. However, I tell you what, what my def, my definition of the role of product marketing is in terms of, what it delivers to a business is that it's a role that defines strategic growth for an organization. It is a strategic product marketing is a strategic growth function. It is not a product function. It is not a marketing function. Most organizations think that, and and to some degree it's right and it's not right that it's a go to market motion for most. And there is a huge, a huge part of that. But the question is, should product marketing own go-to-market? Well, there's two ways to look at go-to-market. There's go-to-market strategy and there's go-to-market execution. And they sh- we should not own the execution part. There are other, at the end of the day, that all the other teams are the ones that are actually doing the work. 
product marketing, by definition, of the kind of work we do, um, is very much below the waterline. Uh, and my news newsletter is called Below the Waterline for that very reason that most of the work we do you, you won't see, but it forms the majority of the work, just like an iceberg below the waterline. So whether you know that's uh, segmentation work, uh, competitor insight decision making working into you know the back channels with executives in the c-suite or you know business case hypothesis insight work deep insight work all of that managing the short medium and long-term horizons for the business as well is a strategic function and you know in my world for product marketing product marketing is a strategic growth function uh i don't go i don't do go to market execution per se and i think that over time we're going to see product marketing break out as a strategic growth function, not a, not a go-to-market function, which a lot of organizations have. And, and the, the, the challenge here lies that is, is the misattribution of what people think product marketing actually is. And, and there's a lot of change coming. So, you know, the way that Airbnb are combining their product management and their product marketing function into one. Apple already app. It's already been said that Apple do it, but they actually have separate product marketing as well. I know plenty of people at Apple, so they have they have they do have a separate function, but they work together as if they were one. Mm-hmm. Um, f- for me, that is Nav- that is Nirvana, and again, every organization will continue to do it differently. I don't ever see a scenario where all companies are aligned and do it the same, and that sales means the same thing everyone product marketing will never be that but the kind of product marketing that i specialize in is very much just the strategic growth engine thank you we'll turn this part definitely into a clip or something to based on a on a lot of walls so, so oh, thank you for oh yeah definition. oh yeah there'll be plenty of people come running going i agree or don't agree but that's good we want a reaction for sure shifting gears uh, harvey backstage pass uh, hey hey what what, what, this, uh, what made you decide to write a book? And also, it's it's a pretty unique title. Uh, um, just by reading it, you're not supposed to connect it anyhow to business. But ultimately, as you said, it's 50% business and 50% musical yeah. rock. So tell me more about it. Yeah, so my book, Backstage Pass, there was never, you know what? There was never a day I woke up one day and I thought, you know what? I'm going to write a book today. Uh, that that actually never happened. It was just a very gradual thing over time. Uh, I was doing an interview yesterday for a website and they asked me a similar question. And I, and I said, look, the origin of the book is, is it came from many, many years of telling all these rock and roll war stories from my, from my past at the water cooler at the coffee machine, in the staff restaurant, across multiple companies, all big companies, you know, Microsoft, Kaspersky, Seiko, you, I mean, Virgin, all the companies that I worked at, I used to tell these stories. And people used to lean in. I And, and from my point of view, I always just took it for, I've always taken my background for granted. And, and I always thought it was normal. I'm like, well, who didn't go on the road and tour with a rock band when they were 19? Because for me, that was normal. That was my normal. But of course, over time, it revealed itself to be actually completely unnormal <laughs> or untypical, let's put it that way, unconventional. And uh, so people would lean in or tell these stories as people, we would get to know each other over time. And they would go, you did what? You worked with, what, you worked with ACDC? Oh, you, you did this? You went where when you were 19? And all of this and all these crazy stories. And, you know, 
cars getting driven into swimming pools and TVs getting thrown. <laughs> it's all in there, and so I lived it. it this is is not not these are real stories. And then a few people said to me, I don't know, it was probably about ten years ago now. Said to me, Harvey, you should you really you should write these down. Like one day you're going to be gone, and these stories will be gone forever. When you're gone, the stories are gone. You should write them down. That was a bit of a morbid thought to think. Look, okay, one day, one day. <laughs> anyhow, different different podcast. And I thought, you know what, you're you're right. One day I'll, I'll get around to it. And I can't remember, in all honesty, I, I can't remember the moment I turned around. And, okay, I'm going to do it. But I do remember the moment that I built out, I fleshed out a framework of what it would look like. I remember toiling with myself about how to position the book and what category it should be in back to the point about being the category is so important it's the biggest decision ever made on this book is what category should it be in. and um and then i've got a great editor sarah oliver she's brilliant and we, we i just set about writing it and as you know with writing it was about creating small habits that are repeatable so because it was a, such a huge body of work if i knew how much work it was going to be it was going to be i probably wouldn't have done it but i think that that's true for everything that i've ever done that's big in my life and that that applies for everyone if you actually know how much hard it, how much hard work it's going to be you wouldn't do anything so uh, you know ignorance was bliss from that point of view but to your point about yeah it's a business book it's a rock and roll book from a business point of view I positioned it as an unconventional business book, not as a memoir, even though it reads a little bit like a memoir. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is it's not a memoir because who the hell knows who Harvey Lee is, right? Number, and I did some research through you, Garvin, like only 40% of people would buy a book from someone they'd never heard of. I'm like, okay, that's not great. <laughs> and, and then I thought, well, on the flip side, I don't want to write a marketing manual or a how to how to do marketing book because you know what there was six thousand on last time i looked a few years ago there were six thousand listed on amazon i'm like i'm not competing in that category either it's just like the martech landscape is like twenty thousand companies in the martech landscape it's just suicide so commercial suicide so i'm like no can't be it so what what am i going to do i thought well i'll play in both mm -hmm. uh, i'll have a I have a foot in both but the unique thing about my book is it's written as a memoir, but it gives you the business insight as well. So it's very much like a movie script that educates. You know, it educates as much as it informs. Uh, it entertains as much as it informs. So that, from that point of view, I, you know, I positioned it as an unconventional business book, and then, then I had to work out, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to convey what it is on the front cover. And there was two ways that I did that through the brand codes, through the brand assets, the visual assets, uh, which I just did a, a series of mini videos on LinkedIn. Mm. And the strap line. And the strap line is 50% rock and roll, 50% business, 100% true. And that's the thing that sort of seems to grab people. They're just like, oh, that, sound, that sounds like something different. And it is, and it's it's exactly what the book is. It's it's actually probably sixty six point six percent rock and roll, but that doesn't really ring as well as fifty percent. So, yeah. so I had to dial it down a bit. But um, so the so the strapline really does the work for me, which which site which is the signpost of the category, the signpost of what the book's about, right? But I also, and then obviously the subtitle, which is a business book that's far from conventional. 
I didn't want to be so explicitly clear about what you're going to get out of the book, like other business books do. It's like how to guys read this and do that mm-hmm. because there's, there's so much in the book that's different. There's so much texture in the book. There's so many different things that people take away from it. It's impossible for me to actually say what you're going to get out of it, but what you will get out of it is inspired lessons in life that you can, action the next day in your job or in life and you're going to have a hell of a ride reading it right so you'll laugh you'll cry you'll learn so and the reaction to the book from the media has actually just really blown me away really i mean it's won three awards so far i've just been invited to an awards dinner in new york in june for a fourth one it went to number one on the amazon chart hot list it's been on BBC twice in the past month. National BBC on the Craig Charles show sent it to number one after I did my interview on that. The people in my family phoning me up going, I just heard you on the radio. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, it's having an impact. So clearly it's resonating with people. And of course, the, the, the name of the book, Backstage Pass, really it, it, it suge- correctly suggests what you get in. is an insider view of the music industry as to mm-hmm. how it really works and the video games industry and the tech industry and my move into marketing and product marketing. It's how it really works. But of course I've been working for 40 years. So you, you get this really, you get the long view. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 23 chapters. Every chapter is a milestone in chronological order. And I talk you through it. It'll take you back to a time and a place in like 1980s Britain that most people of a certain age certainly will remember, but most people reading the book, especially those outside of the UK, uh, will never, will not, won't know. But because it's written so narratively, you'll feel like you're in it. Mm -hmm. So somebody once told me, I read the book, and he's about my age actually, he's a vice president in tech. He read the book early, and he, I did a call down with him, and he says. This book is a historical record of a time and pl- a time and place that most people never really live through, but people of a let's say forty five years and older will, will remember, right? But it doesn't matter. I mean, the feedback I'm getting from younger readers is the same. They're like, "Wow, I, I, I didn't know the place I lived in was like that." You know, pre-internet, pre-tech, analog. How work got done in those days. You know, I, I, I lay it all out. And you know what? You're going to have a laugh at the same time. Nice. Where can people get this book? So it's available. What's my my my, my spiel is? Uh, it's available everywhere. They sell good books, right? So uh, it's available on Amazon everywhere, all around the world. It's available in the states, uh, in Barnes and Noble, Walmart in the UK. It's of course, Amazon everywhere. Uh, Waterstones, Blackwells, Booktopia in Australia. So it's it's available uh, everywhere. And it's, I, I made the decision, again, back to the topic about category, mm-hmm. I made the decision to launch it simultaneously on all formats on launch day. So it's out on the 14th of February, purely because there's a memorable day that no one will forget. <laughs> again, look, more launch lessons. The whole book, the whole book, and I, and I called the, call the, the launch plan for the book Built in Public. Because I'm sharing everything that I'm doing, all the insights, all the thinking, all the research of what went into making this book, launching this book, all the marketing that went behind it. I'm sharing it all online because that's my target audience and I, I want people to join me for the ride. So it's out 14th of February. It's available at all good retailers. It's available on all formats. So my point about category, 
after I did some more research on this, most books only come out on one or two formats on their launch mm-hmm. day. The other formats come out later if there are other formats. So, you know, the minimum minimum format requirement is paperback and ebook or paperback and Kindle, whichever e- kind of ebook you have. But I've I've done paperback, ebook, hardback, and audio book all on the same day. And even major publishers don't usually do that. Uh, for commercial reasons that we can talk about another time. I decided because I've got, I'm only one person, you know, I've got constraint over how much, how much work I can carry on doing. I decided, oh, well, I'm just going to go big and I'm just going to do it all at the same time. So it'll, all formats will launch at the same time. At the moment, pre-launch, it's pre they're all available for pre-order except audiobook. The audiobook will just appear on the 14th. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm getting great feedback on the audiobook. I had a lot of fun doing the audiobook. I was in this studio and I recorded the whole thing in here. You know, and I did it myself. So it might be the first and only time I ever recorded an audio book, but it was it was a lot of fun. Interesting process. Publishing business is a very interesting business. It's very much like the, the record business or the video games business. Any creative business that has a publishing model, whether mm. a publishing format is a book, a CD, a video game, they all have artists and they all they all have published releases. And the business is, those creative industries are generally they all have a similar vein, a similar thread running through them about how they operate, right? You have artists and you have commercial people, right? The artists are either singers and rock bands or coders making video games or writers, but they're all artists. Mm -hmm. And then the publishers are the record labels, the book publishers, the video games companies, they're the publishers. So, you know, the the essence of the business models all, all, all work the same. And I'm sure after move across all of them during my career. Yeah, after so many product launches, uh, I'm sure this is going to be another successful launch that you will handle. So, fingers crossed for that. <laughs> Wrapping up, Harvey, you've been into so many interesting career paths, uh, so many big brands uh, led product marketers uh, in the past couple of years uh, into this journey. Where can people find you and what's what's next for you if they want if somebody wants to engage with you? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Ivan, I'm very active on LinkedIn almost daily, uh, sharing lessons and insights that are usable and actionable. So I would say, first of all, connect with me on LinkedIn or follow, at least follow me on LinkedIn, but or connect, send me a connection request. Uh, that's a starting point. My website, harvey-lee.com harvey-lee.com has just been updated and is continuing to be updated because I'm actually going solo. So um, I am doing a lot of external work right now. So the Product Marketing Alliance have moved from being an employer to being a client. So uh, I'm now freelance and uh, I'm doing a lot of fractional product marketing and CMO work. I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements and a lot of private coaching so for people who want mentorship in their careers or looking for coaching for specific outcomes so there's a lot of i'm doing a lot of career and interview coaching at the moment i've got about two new clients a week coming coming in for that so i'm quite excited about doing doing that and of course got the book coming out as well which is creating a lot of uh interest and and opportunity so my website is a, is a really good one-stop shop to sort of get into each one of those so coaching speaking fractional work 
et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so that's harvey-lee.com. And then, of course, the last part is, and it's all linked from both of those websites, is that I've got a brand new uh, newsletter starting. It's called Below the Waterline. I alluded to it earlier. And you, it links from the front page of my website, so I don't need to give you an address for that. So, uh, And that is basically a mini MBA, a, a, literally a mini MBA in marketing every two weeks in your inbox. I do a case study every two weeks, pull out the actionable insights, whether it be brand, product, careers, whatever it would be. But it's it's meaningful, it's meaningful deep insight that that you can action. And um, so I'm build, building my tribe around that. So I invite you to join my newsletter as well. That's it. Is that yes. enough? Is that enough direct plugging? I think it is, and uh, I'm part of most of these. I can definitely uh, prove that. Uh, everything that you're saying, especially about the the nuggets uh, through the emails. Harvey, thank you so much for being with me today and I look forward to speaking with you again. My pleasure. Keep on rocking. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to follow the podcast and if you liked it, please leave a review. Until next time, keep forging your own path.